For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. The corrosive effects of envy. Psalm 73. Now, this psalm is unique because it was actually written by Asaph, one of the major contributors to the psalms. David actually commissioned him to write a bulk of the psalms. And what we have here is really a a beautiful psalm that talks about Asaph's personal struggles with envy. He begins in verse 1 through 3, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Again, we need to keep in mind that we're reading a particular genre in the Bible. And the psalmists use pretty polarizing language. Remember, we we saw in Psalm 1 how David sort of characterized the people who follow God as the righteous and those who don't acknowledge God as the wicked. And he's not saying that people who follow God never fall into moral failure or don't struggle with sin, but that this is just the way that the psalmists sort of paint the picture of those who are away from God and those who are striving to follow God using this polarized language. Either way, Asaph gives us the thesis of Psalm 73 right here in verse 1. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So this really gives us the summary of what Asaph concludes. And he talks about those who are pure in heart. The word pure just simply means dedicated or devoted. And when he says pure in heart, I think it's a little bit misleading for us today. We're English readers. And when we think about our hearts, we're thinking about the seat of our emotions. When you say, my heart is broken, we're saying that we feel grief. But in biblical thinking, whenever they refer to the heart, these authors, they're talking about something a little bit more complex than one's emotions. The heart represents the seed of one's will or volition. So really what Asaph is saying is that God is good to those who have dedicated their entire selves to God, those who are earnestly striving to follow God. He says in verse 2, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Asaph describes almost immediately the struggle that he's facing. And he tells us about this pain that he experiences. Um, The New English translation, I think, sort of smooths this out a little bit and helps us understand his thinking better. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My feet almost slid out from underneath me. And he explains why. He says, for I saw, I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says that it was the envy that he felt toward those who are more prosperous materially that caused him to feel as if he was losing his way. And I don't know if you're like me, but I I can relate to this. Where sometimes... You enter the Christian life, you think that God's going to present you with blessing and happiness and fulfillment. 
He's going to give you this smooth path. And then you find out that there are struggles. That when you step out in faith, that you experience hostility, resentment from people. And so you sometimes wonder as you're trying to live for God and you find all of these bad circumstances entering your life, you wonder to yourself, am I wasting my time? Have I devoted myself to God for no reason? I mean, after all, when I look at my life and I look at those who don't seem to acknowledge God at all, they seem like their lives are all together, that they're happy, they have no issues. And yet I look at my life and I'm depressed, I'm struggling, and it seems really difficult to follow God. So Asaph was really at a place where he was on the razor's edge of sort of losing his faith because of this envy he felt toward others. He says in verse 4, for there are no pains in their death. Again, the New English translation smooths this out. They suffer no pain. He looks at their lives and he sees that they don't seem to have a care in the world. That they seem to be happy. And he says their body is fat, which I guess is a good thing in the ancient world, right? Really what he's talking about is just that they have all that they need. In the ancient world, people were often hungry and those who are wealthy who were well off, they had an abundance of food. And so having, being fat, being heavy, was actually a sign of wealth and prestige. Verses 5 through 7, he says, They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Their eyes bulge from fatness. Hate when that happens. <laughs> now, just like... English, you know, there are colloquialisms, there are sayings that, that may not make sense to people who are not American. Now, the eye represents in Scripture the desirous or covetous eye. Sometimes you'll read about the evil eye in the Bible. And, it's, and in our mind, in our thinking, we think of the evil eye as like, you know, the stare, the death stare your mom used to give to you when you were little and you were, you know, acting up at the grocery store. But the evil eye actually represented the covetous eye, the eye that was looking to somebody else's fortune or their material prosperity, their advantages in life. And there was this covetousness, this desire to have what they have. And this idea of bulges means to go out, literally. And so, one way to maybe translate this would be that their prosperity leads them to greed. He goes on in verse 7 and 8, he says, The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. So, he observes that people who don't acknowledge God, you know, who have this material prosperity, their lives seem like everything is going good that they even oppress people who follow God, that they, you know, arrogantly shake their fist at God. Again, the New English translation says they mock and say evil things. They proudly threaten violence. He says in verses 11 through 13, they say, how does God know? 
And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and they're always at ease. They have increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Again, I think for those of us who've been trying to live for God for some time, we've all been in this place where we're on the verge of quitting. Things are getting hard. We feel like following God isn't really what we signed up for. When, when we signed up for following God, we thought that God was going to make our lives much better, that we weren't going to experience hardship. And yet here we are, struggling with grief, struggling with tragedy in our lives, dealing with issues that have happened in our past that are painful. And it's easy to feel like maybe I've wasted my time. Surely I have devoted my life to God for no reason. He says in verse 14, for I have been stricken all day long and chastening or punishment is, is something that I experience every morning. So Asaph is in a really dark place. He's struggling. And that is actually common to the Christian experience. For those of you who may have just started a relationship with God, you know, it's really easy to just ride that high where God seems like he's everywhere. It's so exciting to follow God. It's so exciting to be around God's people. And yet, then we feel this experience where we have a low, where it feels like God has withdrawn from us. Or we start to notice irritating things about our roommates or our friends in fellowship. And we come to a place where we wonder, is it worth it? Do we... Do we have we wasted our time following God? So I think it's important for us to understand the nature of envy. Because envy can be poisonous to our spiritual life. First of all, it doesn't refer to a mere emotional reaction. Envy describes unrighteous anger toward others because they have what you want. The real ironic thing about envy is that envy reflects our desire for justice. It reflects our desire for fairness. You see, when, when we see people getting an unfair advantage, it bothers us. For example, you think about somebody who gets an opportunity to you know, go to a prestigious college for no other reason than their parents and their family members have attended that college and they're wealthy and influential people. That bothers us. It bothers us when we see nepotism, people in high places of power or position, using that and, and installing all of their friends and relatives in those positions, even though they're not qualified. Some of us have worked at companies where clearly the boss has installed their son or daughter or, or nephew simply because they're a family member, not because they're actually competent. And that bothers us. And so really, envy describes unrighteous anger toward others. What happens is we, we feel this sense of injustice, but then it morphs into bitterness and anger. Like many sins of the heart, envy is really a corrupt, a corrupt form of a virtue. There are really other forms of envy. 
Obviously, Asaph is looking at the material prosperity of these people who are not following God and seeing that they are not struggling with the the health problems maybe that he experienced in his life. But I think that for many of us, we don't just look at other people's material prosperity and envy that. We, We envy a variety of different things. You know, for some of us, it's other people's family advantages. We look at our upbringing. We see that maybe our our parents were disengaged. We feel abandoned by them. Or maybe our, our father was out of the picture. Or maybe we grew up in an abusive home. And so we look at the people around us who grew up in a loving family and we envy what they have. For others, it's personal gifting. We look at other people's intelligence, we look at their drive, their charisma, and we say to ourselves, I want that. If I could only have those things, that will make me happy. A few years ago, I was reminiscing with my dad about just growing up. And um, it was really interesting because I asked him a pretty honest question. I said, I said, Dad, okay, just... Real honest, Rear, you know, how come I had such a hard time making friends? And without even skipping a beat, he says, simple. It's because you always wanted to be the best. And I was like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> it was almost like he was, he was waiting for that moment for years for me to ask that question. And, you know, he had it loaded in the pistol. <laughs> Later that night, we were sort of browsing through a bunch of pictures and stuff, and Uh, I I stumbled upon a set of pictures that were from my piano recital when I was like 10 years old. You know, like most Asian kids, my parents subjected me (laughs) to intense piano practice from a very young age. Made me practice till my fingers bled. And um, that's a joke. I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) But... um, you know, there was, there was one photo in particular that, that kind of struck me. It was, it was at the end of this recital, and it was a picture of me and my best friend. We were both holding a trophy. You know, in those recitals, when you're that young, everybody gets a trophy, right? And it was interesting. My, my mom captured this look on my face as I had this, I was slightly glancing at my friend's larger, shinier trophy, and he was just beaming with this smile, and you could tell that I had these tear-streaked stains on my cheeks. <laughs> and I realized at that moment why I stopped playing piano. <laughs> you know, when you think about personal gifting, you know, for some of us, it's that we admire, envy people's attractiveness. It bothers us that We don't get the same attention as the people who others regard as attractive. People don't want to talk to us. Or in other cases, we admire people's athletic ability. I mean, no matter how hard we practice, no matter how hard we try, I mean, you know, this person, they just have that natural gifting. They can jump higher than us. They can run faster than us. They have incredible cardio. I mean, they're just like a a human lung. I mean, I've met guys who, you know, after like training for a 5K, you know, they'll just put out their cigarette and go run a 5K faster than me. You ever met anybody like that? It's annoying. 
Cornelius Plantinga uh, writes, enviers want to be envied. They want to turn the tables on people whose successes make them so miserable. That's the real irony of envy, isn't it? The reason why we envy is we want others to envy us. We want to turn the tables and to be shining in the spotlight like the people we admire. I think for some, it's prosperity or success. We look at the success that other people have and we envy that. We wish that we would get the same kind of admiration from our colleagues that these other individuals have. For some of us, it's that we envy another person's dating relationship. In other cases, it's not really what, what another person has, but what they lack that we envy. We look at other people and we see that they lack personal hardship. We think to ourselves, I have so much baggage, I've gone through so much in my life, and yet here's this person, never had to go through these things. It takes me three or four years just to, just to get to zero, and this person in the same period of time has just, you know, continued on. And that's devastating. It's, it's, it, it bothers us, eats away at us. Some questions to maybe ask yourself to help you identify whether or not you're struggling with envy. Do you have the habit of turning your peers into rivals? Do you feel called into question by their achievements? Do you feel that their success is more than they deserve and yours somehow less? Do you get angry when they succeed? Do you secretly cheer when they fail? Are you disappointed, even angry at the gap between what you want and what you have? I think if we look at this just list of questions, I think it's easy for us to all identify in ourselves at least this potential for envy. I mean, if you can't see that, then you're either self-deceived or at this point in your life, you're on the top. But someday, you're going to encounter somebody who's better than you, who's going to be in the spotlight, who's going to demonstrate that you're not the best, and your whole world's going to come crashing down. What are the consequences of envy? I think, first of all, those who are trapped in the grip of envy experience piercing grief of self-pity. You know, one of the things that you experience when you are caught up in this lifestyle, this, this perspective of envy, is that you start to eat away at yourself. It's almost like a gangrene that starts to spread. And it not only affects you, but it also affects the people around you. Another thing that you see is that it can cause depression. Interestingly, your socioeconomic status isn't really the best predictor of whether or not you'll experience depression. The best predictor of your, whether or not you're going to have depression, one of the things that shows the highest correlation is actually your perceived disparity between where you're at in life and where other people are at in life. It's interesting, if you own like a $500,000 house somewhere, 
And yet, let's say the median price of houses in the neighborhood was a million dollars, you're very likely to be depressed, according to research. And that's because you sense that there's a gap between what you have and what others have. So you see, it's not really about an objective lifestyle that determines whether or not you're going to experience depression, but it's really the self-perception of what you have and what others have and how, how you wish you had that. Also, you see that this sometimes issues in bitterness and hostility. You know, we're, we're stunned at people's successes and at other times we take perverse delight in their failures. Look at what Asaph says in verse 21. He says, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within... I mean, we've all experienced that. This envy that just, that just eats away at us. Cornelius planning it again says, whenever we find envy, we find the wreckage of community. Envious people backbite. They deliver congratulations with a smile that in another light might be taken for a sneer. They acknowledge someone else's, someone's praise of a rival, but then push their rival into the shadow of a master. You ever been in a conversation like that before? I mean, they'll be like, man, this guy, he's really amazing at basketball. Well, I mean, he's no Michael Jordan. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's just really a way of, of knocking this person down another level, another notch. The envier gossips. He saves up bad news of others and passes it around like an appetizer at happy hour. You ever notice yourself doing that? Somebody that you envy, somebody that you feel bitter hostility towards, that you, you go around and, and you make little comments that sort of put them in a bad light. The envier grumbles, he murmurs, he complains that all the wrong people are getting ahead. Yeah, I mean, this is something that you see when you fall into envy is that you experience this bitterness and hostility toward those who you view as rivals. This also can uh, issue an anger toward God. Asaph says in uh, verse 13, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. He's angry at God that he doesn't have the same sort of advantages, the same kind of material prosperity as those who are not following God. Tim Keller, in his book, Prodigal God, talks about this mentality where we work to do good things in order to get good things from God and how that's a trap. He says, if you think goodness and decency is the way to merit a good life from God, you'll be eaten up with anger since life never goes as we wish. You'll always feel that you're owed more than you're getting. You always see someone doing better than you in some respect of life and will ask, why this person and not me? After all, I've done. This resentment is your own fault. It's caused not by the prosperity of the other person, but by your own effort to control your life through your performance. You see, it's easy for us to look at God, not as the object of our affection, but as the basis to get what we want, which is blessing, a good life, a smooth path. 
And yet God never promises that. He promises a joyful life. He promises a fulfilling life. And he promises to give answers to the difficult questions that come up in life. But he never promises that it's going to be this relationship between a boss and an employee where if you do the things you need to do, then you're going to get what you deserve. I remember talking to a high school student I was mentoring for many, many years. And at one point, he was on the verge of just quitting. And we started this small Bible study in Pickerington many years ago. And he brought out quite a few friends. I mean, it grew from like three or four people up to like 20 within a couple years. And despite all of the things that he had seen God do, he felt like God owed him something. I mean, his parents were on the verge of a divorce. He was depressed. He felt miserable. And, you know, he told me, frankly, he says, after all I've done for God, it seems like he would be, he would be willing to give me some blessing in my life. I look at all these other people And it seems like their life is fine, even though they're not following God. So why am I wasting my time? And instead of working through this, eventually he allowed that envy and bitterness to just eat away at him. Now verse 14 really signals a turning point in Psalm 73. At this point, Asaph is just talking about his feelings, how, how angry he is about the situation he's in. I mean, very few of us would ever dare to say these sorts of things to God. But he does so with honesty. He says in verse 15, If I have said I will speak thus about these thoughts, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Notice how there is a slight change in perspective. From verse 1 through 14, Asaph was looking at himself and his situation. He was looking inward. And now it seems like he's looking outward. He's starting to get some perspective from God. And he starts to notice, look, my, my actions, they actually impact more people than just me. He says, if I had spoke thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He starts to see that if he had allowed his envy to just eat away at him, that it would have been damaging to the people around him. And honestly, for me, that's a lot of times when God gets my attention. When he starts to show me the ways that my behavior, these patterns of relating, this mentality that I'm holding on to is damaging the people around me. So I think this leads us to to the first thing that helps us to sort of break out of envy, you know, to, to break up the hard clods in our heart that hold us back from turning to God is realizing the cost of envy, to see that it's it's impacting more than just you. He goes on in verse 16 and 17, he says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. So he says, until I came into the sanctuary of God, I was stuck into the, in this mindset of envy. Until. And really, I think that this is one of the most crucial things 
for breaking out of this attitude of of envy is that you need to take your envy to God. It's until until you do this, Envy is going to continue to just spread and and its corrosive effects are not only going to work out in your life, but also it's going to damage the people around you. He says in verse 21 and 22, he says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. I mean, he's, he's starting to get some perspective here. His eyes are starting to be open to the way he's acting, that he has the wrong perspective. It's not that he has all of these circumstances that are, that are befalling him. It's that he has the wrong mentality, he has the wrong attitude in seeing these things. You know, God gave him two insights that began to break up his envy. First, Asaph's problem was really his own attitude. He started to see that You know, although I may not have the kind of advantages that others have, even though I may not have the material prosperity that others have, it doesn't really matter what others have or what I don't have. It's really a question of how do I perceive life? You know, you may have grown up in in circumstances in your life that have given you disadvantages, You feel like, I've got this deficit and I'm just climbing out of this hole. And yet it's easy to just sort of throw up in your your hands and say, well, it's not my fault. I've been dealt a bad hand and to destroy your life. And yet, that's not an excuse, right? That's not an excuse to destroy your life even though you have a a lot of things that are stacked against you. And so Asaph realized that it wasn't really his circumstances that were the issue, it's the way he was perceiving his circumstances that matter. You know, you think about people who have had incredibly negative circumstances enter their life, and yet the ones who have overcome that, we regard as heroes. And so instead of viewing our hardship, our struggles, the disadvantages that we experience in life, as something that fates us to failure. If we have a perspective where we can use this for good and that, you know, if we trust entrust ourselves to God, that he can actually help us out of these circumstances. I mean, that's just a totally different way of looking at the world. Asaph's envy sprung from a self-righteous attitude. He believed that the reason why he deserved better was because he was a good person. And some of us actually believe that about ourselves. You know, we looked at God and we were like, you know, after all these good things that we've, I've done in my life, this is what I get? Why don't you give me what I deserve? And yet, what do we expect from a righteous, morally perfect God? What do we actually deserve from him? I don't think we know what we're asking for. He says in verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. He he viewed himself as this righteous person who deserved good things from God. Secondly, he placed his desire for material things 
above his relationship with God. Sometimes we view God as a means to an end in our lives instead of the true object of our affection. And when we reverse that order, we inevitably fall into this works-based mentality that leads to envy. Because within that paradigm where we think the best way to get blessing from God is by doing good things and avoiding bad things, then when that system gets messed up and we see the people who are doing bad things get good things in their life or get away with things, then we start to get angry. We start to envy them. We start to wonder, why is my life so hard when I'm doing the right thing? Asaph says that. He says in verse 3, I was envious of the, of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Secondly, Asaph's perspective was short-sighted. Look at verses 17 through 19. He says, Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived therein. Surely you set them in slippery places. You've cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. So when he entered into God's sanctuary, and he's not talking about a place. He's not talking about going to church. He's talking about entering into God's presence. And luckily, God says that because we have a relationship with Christ, we can enter freely into his presence at any time. And when we come to him with our envy, God will give us perspective, just like he gave Asaph perspective. What happened when he walked into God's presence? God gave him a vision of what life would be like in the future. You see, a lot of times the things that we envy, the things that we think are going to make us happy or are going to give us the acknowledgement that we deserve are things that are going to eventually perish. They're going to be things that, in the final estimate, mean nothing. I was reading this story about uh, how a famous Christian author, when he was in college, set out to be a champion tennis player. And he was really proud when they displayed his trophy uh, at the school's um, you know, trophy case. And years later, somebody sent him his trophy in the mail. And there was a little note there. It said, I found this in the trash when they were remodeling the school. Thought you may have wanted it. You see, all of your accomplishments, all of your trophies that you're living for, somebody else is going to trash that. It's not going to matter one day, even though it means a lot to you. Maybe we could think about this in a more concrete form. I want to do an informal survey. Okay. I just want you to raise your hand if you know who this person is, okay? Okay, this is obvious. This is Steph Curry, right? I mean, he holds the record for uh, NBA three-pointers in one season, over 400. So he's an amazing player. Okay, what about this guy right here? Okay. LeBron James, one of the most dominant basketball players of your guys' generation, definitely in his twilight right now. 
Um, all right, let's, 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 let's go back a little bit further. What about this guy? Okay, all right, not as many hands, maybe half the room. This is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kareem holds the all-time scoring record, over 38,000 points. He has six rings and is regarded as one of the great players of all time. Second only to Michael Jordan. <laughs> yeah. right. I, knew somebody would, I knew somebody would agree with me here. What about this guy right here? Oh. Okay, yell out his name. Okay, this is Pistol Pete Maravich. Now, the interesting thing about Pistol Pete Maravich is that um, he was really a, uh, one of the dominant players in the 70s. Um, he holds the NCAA record, scoring record with over 3,600 points. He averaged 44 points a game, and that was before they instituted the three-point line. I mean, he was regarded as one of the greatest players in NBA history. Okay, let's go back even further. Who's this? Okay. Not very many hands here. This is Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain. One of, the mo- one, of the, one of the greatest accomplishments he had was that he scored 100 points in a game, and he was, again, one of the most dominant players of his generation. What about this guy? One hand. Let's hear it. That's right. George Mikan, a.k.a. Mr. Basketball. And... One of the things that he was known for was he was so dominant that he could, he could, uh, um, he had this hook shot that he could just basically dominate his defenders. And, um, you know, most people during his generation regard him as one of the greatest basketball players. I mean, he was a household name. And so you think about these guys, right? Imagine this guy, George Mikan. He, at his prime, was a household name. I mean, if you said George Mikan, I mean, it would be like saying LeBron James today. And yet within a generation or two, we don't even know who he is. Hardly any of us in this room. And so you think about people who are this famous, the people that we often envy, the ones who have all the money, all of the fame, all of these things that we think, if I had those things... That would make me happy. Within a few generations, they disappear from our collective memory. And the question is, where do you stand in all of that? Do you really think all the things that you are striving for in your life, that you think is going to, to keep people, keep uh, you know, your memory alive, that that's going to matter in a generation or two? And it makes you wonder, are are the things you're really striving for, are they going to have any real value? One of the things that God says is that if you invest in the things that I tell you to invest in, they're going to have eternal value. They'll never fade. 
and I'll never forget your accomplishments for me. He says in verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. And so Asaph breaks out of this envy and he starts to see what's most important in life, that he knows God. He says in verse 24, he says, you have taken hold of my right hand. You have count, you, you, with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. So he revels in the fact that God has an active presence in his life, that he guides him. He says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. You have to put this in context. You know, Asaph, even though he's envying other people for their material prosperity, he must have been a fairly wealthy person. I mean, David commissioned him to write many of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. And despite his wealth, he's able to say, Whom have I in heaven but you? He recognizes all these things that people live for. Those things mean nothing in comparison to knowing God. And finally, he says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. Let's try to draw a few conclusions. I think the first thing is, you need to see the personal cost of envy in your life. You may not have recognized it until now, but it's damaging to your soul, but it's also damaging to the people around you. It could account for why you feel so conflicted with the people around you, that you're subconsciously envying them, comparing yourself with them, seeing them as rivals, Secondly, you're incapable of escaping envy's grip on your own. There's no way you can try to will yourself out of this. What you need is revelation. Just like Asaph, where where God transported him in a vision to see what the future holds. That these things that we value in his economy really hold no value at all by comparison to knowing him and loving his people. And finally, you need God's presence and power in your life. You may be here tonight, and if there's anything that I want you to walk away with, I want you to realize that what God really wants from you is not for you to be a good person. He doesn't want you to just avoid bad things in your life. I mean, he he desires those things, but ultimately he wants to have a relationship with you. But the problem is there's this gap between you and him. And that gap exists because of the things that you have done that have offended him. But he loves you. And he sent his own son, Jesus, to come and die for you so that you can have a relationship with him. And so God invites you to come into his presence, but he's not going to impose that on you. He's not going to make you have a relationship with him. You have to do that voluntarily. And so if you're here tonight, I would challenge you, maybe after this teaching, maybe when you go home tonight, to just turn to him in your heart. And without giving a showy prayer or you know, saying it in an elaborate way, just from the heart, turning to him and asking for this forgiveness 
And at that moment, you're going to sense God come into your life. Grateful for this example of one of your followers just really struggling with their faith and emerging with even stronger faith. Uh, For me, it just makes the Christian life more realistic that we are going to experience ups and downs, that we won't experience a smooth path in life, but one of the great things that you offer, God, is, is meaning and an explanation for why we experience hardship. And uh, you also give us uh, the ability to persevere through that uh, without you know, burying our head in the sand and pretending like we're you know, not having any kind of suffering in our lives, but that um, you know, we can face that realistically knowing that you're with us. And um, we thank you that, that you are a God who is with us through trials, through difficulties, and that despite our struggles, you still love us and that um, you want to help us through that. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.